I think that they misunderstand me leading them down there as me protecting them from the people that are experiencing homelessness. And then once they get down there and then once I've talked to them, I let them know, know what we're doing. We're, we're letting people know that we're coming to their house. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're talking with Scott Blackburn. Scott is a member of Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Homeless Outreach and Rapid Response Team. And what they do is they provide mobile street outreach in Tulsa to individuals and families experiencing homelessness. In addition, they work with law enforcement to ensure people stay connected to services and avoid being ticketed or incarcerated. Their ultimate goal is to give people experiencing homelessness and their families an opportunity to start new lives. And the reason we invited Scott to be on today's podcast is that he's been working alongside investigators who are trying to find the mass graves of the 1921 race massacre here in Tulsa. Many people know the story of the race massacre, but for those who don't, I'm going to read some excerpts from a New York Times article that actually Scott worked alongside that reporter to tell. So this piece is from December 17th, 2019, and it's by Nicholas Bogle Burroughs, and it begins, Scientists said on Monday that two patches of land in Tulsa, Oklahoma, could be the sites of mass graves holding victims of a bloody 1921 clash in which white mobs attacked black residents and destroyed a prosperous business district known as Black Wall Street. The evidence of possible mass graves gathered by two archaeologists from the University of Oklahoma could lead to excavation of the sites and possibly a memorial to the victims. The massacre in Tulsa was one of the deadliest eruptions of race-motivated violence in the nation's history. As many as 300 people were killed and a whole section of the city destroyed, including more than 1,200 homes. It began on May 31, 1921, after a black man was arrested and accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. A state commission found in 2001 that it was more likely that the man had just accidentally stepped on the woman's foot. The assault charges were later dropped. Crowds gathered outside the courthouse, and a local newspaper suggested that the man might be lynched, prompting some black residents to arm themselves and patrol the streets. A mob of white men then attacked and set fire to the predominantly black Greenwood neighborhood, including the business district known as Black Wall Street. The scientists' report on Monday found, based on soil and other tests, that two locations, a cemetery with unmarked graves, and a wooded area along the Arkansas River may hold the remains of victims of the massacre. G.T. Bynum, Tulsa's mayor, said he understood that the city, by ignoring the massacre for so many years, had lost the trust of some residents whose relatives were killed or suffered in other ways. For that reason, he said, it was more important than ever that the process of investigating the possible mass graves involve community members and work slowly to make sure that no one's voice is lost. So with all that being said, I want to welcome Scott Blackburn to the Mental Health Download. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be here. All right. Let's start just giving a brief overview of your career in homeless outreach. Well, in 2009, I lost my little brother to a drug overdose. And uh, at the time, I was uh, heavily into drugs and drug trafficking and things like that. And I, I quit and decided that I was going to do some good with my life. And uh, kind of bring uh, honor to what happened to my brother, which was a senseless death. He was a combat medic. 
And uh, so I, I, I needed to do something that could change my whole life. So I joined a, a life skills program with John 316 Mission, which was about, you know, a couple hundred miles away from where I grew up. So I came to Tulsa to actually move into the homeless mission to go through uh, life skills training and also a discipleship program. And uh, during that process, uh, I had become the cook there and uh, got to know a lot of the people coming in. It was my first experience uh, really with a homeless population at all. And uh, like I said, I was living there. So uh, I got to know these people pretty well. And then a, a storm came through uh, in 2009, a big snowstorm. And we were real concerned about a lot of the people that didn't show up to dinner that night. So we uh, kind of loaded up some backpacks full of supplies and uh, picked a direction. And we knew that a lot of people had said they were staying down by the river. And so we, uh, the cars weren't really able to drive around at that time because of the amount of snow that had happened. So we walked from John 316 Mission to the river, uh, bringing supplies. And uh, that's kind of where it began, was through going through out of concern for these, these people that, we, that were my friends uh, that I had, had fed every day. And I was, I was concerned about them uh, maybe passing away on the street. All right. And so that leads us right into your work with the research team mandated to find, you know, the mass graves from the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So let's let's start there, um, because that first place that you did street outreach in 2009 is actually one of the possible mass grave locations. And so first walk us through how you became associated with this research team. Um, I'm currently going into my master's program, and so I was going to have to leave the coffee bunker where I worked because there was no one there to supervise me uh, for my master's internships and stuff. And I wanted to come to the Mental Health Association uh, because of my relationship with Noe Rodriguez and Zach Boyd and because uh, it's what I do in my free time anyway. Uh, so outreach has always been a passion. And uh, Noe had told me that the, that the historian had come to him and he talked about a description of an area that he only had through that first-person eyewitness account. There was no real picture or no real uh, anything like that. So that when they were describing it, um, it doesn't take long to realize that we we all know where that area is that that person was describing. And so um, as Noe transitioned to go over uh, to the day center, he had me uh, meet with the historian to take them down there to look at the area and see if that's what they thought uh, would be the area that they're looking for. Let's let's kind of set the table a little bit more. Uh, so tell me about who that research team is that you worked with. Um, it's it was me and, and mainly the historian, uh, which is Scott Ellsworth. We he, he and I worked the, the most together, looking at the area, and then of course we had the archaeologist team that came from the University of Oklahoma is where I believe they came from. And uh, they, they've they done a lot of dig, digs and a lot of uh, important work in, in Mexico and some other places and made some, they're really, really good at their job. But they, they only came out a couple of days uh, to do the actual scanning and then it takes about a month for them to interpret the data that they get. And so uh, that, that happened here when it was still warm out. And since then, we've been meeting with uh, 
like reporters from the the New York Times and things like that that went out there with Scott and I to kind of look at it. And we kind of interviewed some of the people in the area. So tell us the story of the 1921 eyewitness, what she saw, and then how you and Noe sort of realized that this must be the place and then describe that area, the you know, the geography of it. There was an eyewitness account that was of a child that was in in a truck while her father, who I believe was a a work for the police department, was down working. They were parked on the railroad tracks, and they were looking down at at a sandy bank that had bodies lined out on it, and then they were throwing uh, bodies into a ditch. And um, above it, there was a little cliff and then some curving railroad tracks. And then above it was another cliff. And so that's a very kind of distinct explanation of, of you know, the, the crossing of the railroad tracks, the curves and the, and the cliffs, which kind of uh, from a perspective uh, down by the river, there's a place you can stand where that's exactly what you see. And so once that was identified, we got, uh, the historian down there, and he kind of looks around. He got pretty excited, and uh, we kind of started looking around the area and then brought in the uh, scanning equipment just to do a quick scan to see, you know, if it was something or wasn't something. Uh, I think that there was actually more than one report uh, where he had heard stuff about that area described, and uh, it was the one that was the hardest for them to find. But once they had talked to uh, Noe, and uh, and then and then after that to myself, it, it's there's really only one place it could be. So um, once you they talked to someone that knew the lay of the area and knew those rivers the way that we do, uh, walking them and and going and uh, helping people along the river, it was pretty obvious as to where that place would be. Um, talk about actually the, um, what the cane, what the river cane looks like, how tall it is, how fine that sand is, how unusual that location is. Um, just kind of help us set the scene a little bit more. And then also talk about how many encampments are down there. Okay. Well, the, the river area, uh, along that side, I mean, it's mostly dirt and, uh, and trees and this, this particular area has an unusual amount of sand and and it's actually too up on the upper level like you can find sand along the river along the banks but not up above that on that cliff like that like it is there and then there's um canes growing uh there and it's a it's a pretty large patch of canes probably about uh 25 yards by by 15 yards it's just like a like it was placed there it's not very natural at all, and we haven't found cane anywhere else along that river, uh, which made it pretty odd. And then um, it's just that that area seems to draw people, and, and they don't. Uh, there's no you can't see it from the road, and you it's not a uh, not like a, there's a resource there or anything like that. It's kind of a less, like a little hidden area. It's always been of interest to us because there's just the amount of people that come and go from there is pretty outstanding to see because uh, the first time we went there, there were about, you know, there were a lot of camps, probably 15 to 20, uh, which is about almost what it's up to now. It's been as low as two to three, but nobody seems to stay there very long. 
it's just, uh, for one, it's close enough to a housing addition that their campfire smoke blows into the housing addition, and, and maybe they get asked to move by the fire department or someone like that. But a lot of other people just don't uh, don't stay there long. Um, it's They don't feel that it's a safe area. Yeah. And explain how difficult, it, why it is so difficult to get into that area. Tell, talk about some of the barriers in there. Well, it's the train and the levee. And- right. It's on the other side of the levee. And so there's no real roads to it um, unless you're, you know, are allowed to drive on the levee, which we are, you know, in touch with the dam authority and, and the Corps of Engineers who control those areas. Um, and also, you know, like an ambulance, anything like that can't go down there. Uh, like any time that we have someone that needs medical attention, we have to bring them out of there back to uh, across the other side of the levee. And even where they, the, the specific dig site is, it's, it's down a little uh, pretty steep hill uh, that uh, isn't easy to get up or down. And, and, you know, as the weather deteriorates, even, even a rainstorm could make it to where um, that isn't as accessible as, as anywhere else that you're going to fall. Uh, so, it's uh, it's a it's a unique area um, where it's located. You've dealt with reporters who've tried to find that area, and if you're not with Scott Blackburn, then you're not going to find that, or one of the researchers, you're not going to find that area, right? I mean, just not it's not that. really. No, it's not something that you're going to stumble across on a normal uh, everyday walk. It, it's a little out of the way, and, and in a in a bizarre area that's surrounded by you know water and and train tracks. So you would not recommend anybody trying to find that area themselves going down there out of respect of that it may be a possible site from this horrible tragedy, um, but also you know you wouldn't want people going down there because that's someone's home. You know there are several people that that is their home, and they are people, and they deserve privacy and respect and dignity, right? Right. That's, I mean, that's what one of my main goals with the research teams is, is to go down and talk with the people first and let them know, hey, we've got someone coming down. Uh, you know, we try to give them a little notice as to, to, to is there's someone going to be coming down and asking if that's okay. And if they say no, we won't go down there. But they, they never have. I mean, everybody's always been so helpful on of this situation. Uh, that it's it, it's pretty amazing to see uh, how that community uh, feels about this and about how they feel it's important that we that we let everyone do their job and and find out if we we found these people's uh, fathers you know or whoever is down there. You know, tell me about some of those people that you know who live in that encampment. Um, it's usually a group encampment um, for safety purposes because it is so close to the city. Uh, but yet it's kind of isolated, so so it's rare that to have uh, single people down there. We've we've seen a lot of young people stay down there in groups right now. I think we have a veteran uh, who who's living down there with uh, about four females that live live in tents around him, and then a couple other guys on the other side. I, I, altogether, we probably have about fifteen camps down in that area right now. Uh, but a lot of them are moving out, um, especially once uh, we've talked to them. Um, it's going to be a it's going to be a process to get those those uh, guys and girls to to kind of move down a little bit and uh, help us to watch that area. Tell me the story about um, you. You mentioned that you helped someone who was living in that encampment. She broke her ankle. 
right? Yeah, we had we had a girl that uh, that hurt her ankle going down there, and was down at the bottom with her dog, that we had to kind of carry back across the levee, and uh, get uh, medical uh, ambulance to come and, and take her in. She had she broke a small bone on the side of her foot falling down the embankment. It's it's a dangerous embankment. Um, it's not a it's not it, it's not really a, a a great place I would say to live. But then again, if you're out there on your own, um, that that hill or and the noise that would be made if someone coming down it could give you enough time to prepare for somebody entering your camp. So it has that safety issue for the people that live down there, and that's kind of uh, the the attractiveness of it. Uh, and then the the canes, of course, kind of have had an extra barrier to wind and things like that. Yeah. When you have taken reporters um, down there, I seem to think that they probably haven't had a lot of contact with people experiencing homelessness and going into an encampment. Talk about just sort of their general perspective on things before they get to the camp and then and then maybe what they what you kind of notice once they get a chance to see people experiencing homelessness and see that they're just they're people first, right? Like just kind of talk about how things that you've noticed. I think that they misunderstand me leading them down there as me protecting them from the people that are experiencing homelessness. And then once they get down there and then once I've talked to them, I let them know, know what we're doing. We're, we're letting people know that we're coming to their house. I mean, uh, is pretty much what it's all about. And then once we get down there, um, like I mentioned before, the people living there have been so helpful. And I mean, they've helped string line. They've helped two things uh, and uh, talked with the historian and talked with the reporters that come through. And um, it's it's they've been more of a help than anything. And I think they leave there knowing that and, and they have a new respect. And sometimes they'll, they'll even want to say hi whenever they come back to the people that are staying down there if they're home, you know, uh, they're not always there. But yeah, it's just uh, kind of letting them know that that we're we're intruding in someone's area. I mean, it it's uh, it's not a matter of I'm trying to keep them from being hurt uh, by the people that live there. It's more along the lines of we need to let the people know know that live there know why we're coming there and ask their permission to uh, come down and, and and look for the for these individuals that have, may or may not be buried there. Um, and I think that that's, that holds a, a, a big part in the hearts of the people living down there, and they want to help, and they want to be a part of it. Yeah. So Scott and I actually went down there with a national TV crew yesterday, and it was interesting because I think they were, at least the reporter seemed a little leery, and I think he did see you as sort of a, you know, protection. But once we got down there, I, it just seemed that there was that sort of light that went on of like they just saw these people as people and they saw them as trying to be as safe as they could, even though they were living in tents, um, you know, and out out in this out in the elements. Um, and, you know, as we were taking them back to their van, they asked questions about who those people are and how they live and the challenges they face. And you know, it was really interesting for you to be able to educate them about what homelessness actually is, because there's so much, there's so many myths and so many horrible stereotypes and uh, fear. And it really seemed like they 
their hearts were open. So I appreciate you doing that. That was really a powerful moment for me. Um, and, you know, actually one of the, the things is that the, uh, the camera person was African-American and he was filming this area. And I asked him, I was like, what, you know, cause I was, I was deeply moved by thinking about what happened there a hundred years ago and just can't even wrap my brain around it still. Um, but that camera person being there, he, he, he told me how poignant it was for him as well. And I'm sure that's how you feel as well. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, another thing is just thinking about all those, those kids and those, uh, families that had, had a a family member just come up missing, you know, and there was never no explanation as to where they went, you know, did my, did my dad run away or did my, it was my dad murdered, um, that's a question that they've lived with their whole lives. And, and when you talk about everybody saying that the mass graves don't exist or, or things like that and trying to make it sound like this wasn't what it was, um, I know I grew up in Oklahoma. I had Oklahoma history. I, you know, I, I, I'm from Oklahoma, and I never even heard of it until I moved to Tulsa. And it wasn't in my books. It wasn't talked about in class. They talked about Watts riots. They talked about other states in their and their uh, racial uh, division that happened and, and, the, and the riots and uh, all these other things. But I'd never heard a word about our, my own state. And so um, it's, just, it's just amazing once you start hearing about what happened. Um, it's almost mind-boggling how this could be covered up so, so completely. And that, um, that even some of these families don't know what happened. And that, that's kind of, I'm hoping that things like this will help bring it to light and give some people some, people some peace and to, to have pride in, in, in what, you know, what their community has been able to get through, if that makes any sense. Yeah, most definitely. So, Scott, before we go, I just want to mention that our Zero Mental Health Symposium is October 1st and 2nd, 2020 in Tulsa at the Cox Business Center. Uh, We're expecting about 800 people to come. And for people who are interested in coming, I just want to read what we're going to be discussing. So, as Tulsa is preparing to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the 1921 race massacre, Mental Health Association Oklahoma will bring together state, regional, and national experts to focus on healing from historical trauma. Scott, you have actually presented at the Zero Mental Health Symposium many times over the years about your work with veterans, about people experiencing homelessness. When people come to the Zero Mental Health Symposium and you know we're discussing healing from historical trauma and, and this project that you have played a role in, what do you hope the big takeaways would be from that session at the Zero Mental Health Symposium on this research project? Um, the main thing is just to, to kind of get all this out there. Let's go ahead and just talk about what actually happened and uh, start talking about, you know, what we can do uh, to acknowledge this and make this part of our history because, you know, we, we've got to learn from this and we've got to learn, you know, that we've nothing like this can ever happen again. Uh, we've got to kind of come together as a community and, and help this to heal. Um, there's a dividing line in Tulsa, and, and uh, we need to, to make sure that we get rid of that. Uh, if you want to learn more about the Zero Mental Health Symposium, visit Zero at Z A R R O W Symposium.org. 
Okay, so Scott, thank you so much for being with us. As we do at the end of every podcast, we have our guest share a few brief final words with our audience and then close us out by saying, go do good things. So Scott, take it away, buddy. Yeah, I just want to say that, uh, you know, when you're out in, about in the town, that, that everybody has value. You know, when you talk about whether it's your race or whether it's, you know, your, whether you have a house or not, um, that everybody deserves that respect and, and reserves, deserves to be treated well. Uh, you know, I just want everybody to be encouraged and to go out there and do good things. At Mental Health Association Oklahoma, we've spent the year asking people, how do they want to be seen? It's a simple question that is sometimes hard to answer. We've created a big mosaic with answers from hundreds of people. They say things like hashtag see me as capable, hardworking, or kind, or maybe hashtag see me as a leader, an advocate, or a change maker. As an organization, we talk a lot about people first. Our programs and services are designed to help people be seen and acknowledged for their humanity. From suicide prevention and fighting stigma around mental illness to ending homelessness and reforming criminal justice, a lot of people in this organization are moving the needle on important topics in the state of Oklahoma. The thing is, these programs and services are not possible without our generous donors. Join us in our mission by donating today. Visit MHAOK.org and hit the big donate button at the top of the page or donate on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash M-H-A-O-K-L-A.